you nearly had an early morning. Uh, Anderson, you'll be preaching next week, mate. Let's, uh, let's just, uh, let's quiet our hearts become, before we come before a very, a very sobering passage, but one that is also gloriously hopeful. Let's pray. Father, it's not by might, human might, it's not by human power, it's not by human strength, but it is by your Spirit. Would your spirit please take these words and apply them to the hearts of your people? And if there would even be one here this morning that does not know you through your Son, that you would bring them into the glorious hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are, we are Church, Volume 2, that means we're on the second round of this uh, series, and there's our title for this morning, War. It's War, Romans 7, 7 to 8, 4. Just a little bit of a reminder of where we've been over the last six weeks, we Started week one in elders, we moved into deacons, we looked at church habits, we looked at service, we looked at little ones, and last week we looked at the cost of following Jesus. And this week, it's war. I grew up in a country that was always at war. I served in the South African Army where I learned to shoot AK-47s and learned to use rocket launchers. Some of you here I know grew up as children in World War II. War is a deadly, devastating reality of human existence. Those of us that are watching in on the war in Ukraine I think we can only shudder as to what those people are going through. War is horrible, even if it's considered a just war. War devastates, war destroys, war maims, it breaks, it kills, it, it brings such painful consequences. I'm sure this morning we're all grateful that we're living in a peaceful time in Australia. And I'm sure that maybe some of us are more than a little comforted by the fact that nuclear submarines are on their way from the United States in 2030. Because war leaves such incurable consequences and because people make such sacrifices, Australia has a perpetual memorial every year, don't they? Lest we, lest we forget. But Christian, I wonder if you understand that there is a war going on inside of you right now. Do you know what war I'm talking about? 
It wasn't a war that started in 1914. It wasn't a war that started in 1939. It wasn't a war that started in 1972. It was a war that started to rage inside of you the day that the Spirit of God invaded your life by faith in Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? I want to explain, I want to explore something of this war with you this morning. Now, every war has a context. So let's firstly go to the war context. If you've got your Bible, Romans 7, 7 through to 8, 4 is helpful. It will come up on the screen. In this war context of our passage, if you look at verse 7, Paul is answering a question. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Now, it may seem like quite a strange question because he's, he's answering a question where the question is, is the law, is the law bad? Is the laws of God, are they, are they something bad? And if you go down to verse 10, Paul says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. What's Paul talking about? Before Paul was a Christian, he was a self-righteous Jew. And he believed that, 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 that if he kept, if he sought to keep the laws of God, that that would bring him life. He thought that if he kept the laws of God as best he could, that would make him righteous. That would, that would be life-giving. That would bring him into the kingdom of God. He, he, he thought that, that, that the law, keeping the law was going to gain him life. But at a moment in time, starting in Acts 9, when he was converted, the Holy Spirit showed him that the laws of God do not show you how righteous you are. They show you how unrighteous you are. They don't show you how good you are. They show you how bad you are. By keeping the law, you don't gain life. By keeping the law, you gain what? You gain death because you can't keep them. So understand what Paul's doing here. So he's writing to Christians in Rome, and they are saying to themselves, okay, if the laws of God expose your law-breaking, not your law-keeping, then maybe the laws are not that good. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But put it this way. If something good exposes something bad, well, then maybe the good is not that, that good. And so Paul in verse 13 says, did that which is good, the law, become death to me? In other words, is it the law's fault that I'm, I'm going to die and come under judgment? No, 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 no. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Let me put that into the vernacular. What Paul is saying is this, there's nothing wrong with the laws of God. They are holy, they are right, they are good. They reflect God's character. The problem is not the law. Who's the problem? Yes, you, whoever you were out there. Yeah, you're the problem. Mr. Anderson, you're the biggest problem this morning. <laughs> it's not the law of God that's the problem and why you die. It's because you can't keep the laws. There's nothing wrong with the laws. It's you, you're the problem. We're the problem. 
which means that we need two things. One, you need someone to take the punishment of your law-breaking. And two, you need someone to keep the laws for you. Did you get that? You need two things, not one. You need someone to take your punishment for law-breaking, but you also need someone to, what? Keep the laws for you. It's a, it's a very helpful quote coming up on the screen. It says this, Active obedience refers to Jesus' whole life obeying the law where he qualifies to be the Savior, the Lamb without blemish. Passive obedience refers to Jesus paying the penalty for our sins on our behalf. So here's what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. Two things happen. The death of Jesus for your sin is credited to your life. And his perfect obedience is also credited to your life. Why? Because the law demands death for disobedience and obedience for life. Now stay with me because I'm going to turn this one other way. We are saved by works. We are. Now if you think that's heresy, don't walk out just yet. Just because Jesus died for our disobedience doesn't mean that the law must no longer be kept. The law of God was kept obediently, perfectly for you. We are saved by works. You're saved by his works, not your works. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam. It's his works that save you. It's his death for you, and it's his obedience for you. Does that make sense? So I hope that you start to understand again. You understand why you could never add anything to what Jesus has done. It's been done for you. There's nothing you can add to the death of Jesus. There's nothing you can add to his perfect obedience for you. How can you add to perfection? What could you do? So let me ask you these questions. Do you understand that the laws of God are good? I'm sure you do. I mean, I'm sure every single one of you here would say, I, I get that, right? I mean, the laws are good. But do you really understand that the laws of God actually expose the evil and the wickedness of your heart? And do you believe, therefore, that Jesus Christ died for your disobedience? And he lived perfectly for your obedience. Because, brothers and sisters, this is the only gospel we have. This is the only gospel there is. This is the only gospel that will save you. But now, having received the Holy Spirit, when we put our faith in Christ, Romans chapter 5, Suddenly, you start to see something happen in you, which is hard. You start to see a war inside. Look at these verses carefully as they come out of our passage. Verse 15, listen to what Paul says. He says, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do. I 
do not do, but what I hate, I do. Halfway through verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Then into verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And everybody went, amen? Christian, this is you and me. Have you ever asked yourself, why do you keep on sinning as a Christian? Why are there sins that you are doing that you just don't seem ever to overcome? Why do you keep on doing the things you don't want to do? Why do you keep doing the, why do you keep doing the things that you hate? Why do you keep on sinning though you are justified right in God's eyes? You are filled with the Spirit. You have the active and a passive obedience of Jesus credited to your life, but you keep on sinning. You don't stop sinning. And why? Do you know why? Let me show it to you in the passage. If you can pick it in verse 14, he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. As it is, it's, it's no longer I myself who do it, but what? But sin living in me. For I know the good itself does for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. That does it. Do you see it? Why do you keep on sinning as a Christian? Why do you not stop sinning though you want to? Why? Because though you are justified and indwelt by the Spirit, you still have the old, the translation in the NIV is the old sinful nature. It's actually the Greek word. You still got the old flesh. It's called the body of sin in verse 24. You, you still got that part of you that keeps on generating sinful desire after sinful desire after sinful desire. A Christian, because of the Spirit living in them, if you went down to verse 22, a Christian does delight in God's law. But here it is. But there is still resident evil within you that is waging war against your righteous soul. A Christian is someone who delights deeply in the laws of God. In the words of Job, a Christian is someone who loves God's laws and therefore seeks to shun evil. But inside the Christian, there's still that old you, that wretchedness, that, that sinfulness, that body of death, that flesh that keeps on generating the evil desires, some of which we obey and some of which we don't. Can we make this a little bit more real? And can we make this a little bit more practical? Take a look at this in Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh or the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, aren't they? Aren't they? Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Let me ask you. As a Christian, how many times have you been sexually immoral in thought, 
word and deed. How many times have you been jealous? How many times have you been envious? How many times have you gotten angry? How many times have you been selfish because you think it's more blessed to take than to give? How many times have you been divisive because you've, got a, you've had a gossiping and a judging and a slandering tongue? How many times have you drunk too much? How many times have you been envious? How many times have you been lazy? How many times, Christian, have you been unkind, unthoughtful? How many times have you lacked love, gentleness, and self-control? How many times have you watched porn? How many times have you been judgmental and arrogant? I'm asking you as a Christian. How many times have you overeaten? How many times have you robbed God and continue to rob God of his tithes and offerings? How many times have you been uncaring, indifferent to serving others? Do I need to go on? How many times have you made so many stupid, sinful decisions because of pride and arrogance because you just refuse to take advice from anybody? Christian, this is your life. As a Christian, you hate this stuff, don't you? You, you, you wish you didn't do them, but you do, but you keep on doing it over and over, and you repent, you cry out before the Lord, you're so disgusted with yourself, and you keep on doing the same thing. Do you want to know how it works? As a Christian indwelled by the Spirit of God, you hear the, the law of God. You hear His command to obey, right? Whatever that is. As you hear it, you delight in it. In the Spirit. In your inner being, you delight in God's law and you, you want to uh, obey it. But at that very moment that that happens... Your sinful nature, the old you, the body of death, the flesh, is provoked within you, and it starts generating an evil desire or two or more to want to get you to do what? Disobey. And as you hear the command as a Christian, and as a sinful nature sort of kicks in, sometimes you shun the evil and obey, but sometimes you shun the obedience and you disobey. I'll give you a couple of examples. You're at a party, social gathering, and the alcohol is flowing, and it may even be free. The godliness in you says, well, I, I, I want to be a witness to the people around me, and I'll have a drink or maybe two at the most, nothing wrong. I, I don't want to get tipsy. I don't want to get drunk. I don't want to get out of control. But suddenly your sinful nature is provoked, and it starts to talk to you, and it says, well, come on, there's nothing wrong with having more than two. I mean, more liquid, more fun. You can handle it. You've had a hard week. You need to relax. You need to let your hair down. I mean, you don't want to seem like a, like, like, like a pious Christian prune, do you? I mean, God will forgive you anyway. Sometimes you shun the evil and you obey, and sometimes you shun the obedience and you disobey. You enjoy food. But in the loneliness and difficulties of life, when you, get, when you get lonely and things get tough and things get hard and the godliness is in you, your spirit, it's, it's, it knows that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know that you are to run to the Lord for his comfort. 
And the son in you says, oh, comfort your soul in food. Comfort your soul in alcohol. Comfort your suit in illicit sex or harmful relationships. You see, and sometimes you shun the evil and you obey, and sometimes you shun the obedience and you disobey. You're faced with so many situations that you cannot fix. You know you can't fix them. And you hear the word of God. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make the path straight. And you know you ought to wait on the Lord and leave it with the Lord and trust the Lord and wait for his outcome. But, but the sinfulness in you says, oh, hey, mate, fix it. Take it in your own hands. I mean, the Lord helps those who help themselves, right? Uh, that's not in the Bible, by the way. Take control. Be the hero. Sometimes you wait. And sometimes you don't. See, what we've got to understand that our Christian lives are a real mix of obedience and sinfulness. And we don't do the things that we should and the things we don't want to do, we do. The things we hate, we do. And it becomes a do-do and a don't-do and a, everything just becomes a whole frazzle. We hate sinning, but we keep sinning. We seem to make such slow progress in those things that we want to overcome. In fact, some things you've never overcome. Such slow progress in overcoming our sins, our sinful habits, our addictions, our counterfeit idols. Do you understand what I'm talking about? So let's go to the war applied. And I'm going to give you six, six applications of this war. Here's the first one. The war is anguish. You look at verse 24. Do you see and do you feel the anguish of the Apostle Paul? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. And that's not Paul with a bad sense of self-esteem. This war on sin in us, our inability to stop sinning, it creates such an anguish of heart that Paul cries out, what a wretched man I am. And when he cries that out, he is talking about that sinful wretchedness. He's talking about that flesh. He's talking about that resident evil. He's talking about that sinful nature, whatever you want to call it. And he hates it. He loathes it. Which is one of the reasons why he says in Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart and be with the Lord that is better by Far, because if he was out of this body and with the Lord, he wouldn't be in a body that sins. Or not, do you know this anguish? Do you know? Do you know that anguish? I know it. I know it. I know it so deeply I can sometimes smell it. I feel it. It brings such anguish at times where I truly want to cut off my hands and my feet. I want to pluck out my eyes. And I want to cut out my tongue. 
you know what I'm talking about? The war is anguish. But the war is a sign of salvation. Because if you are a Christian here this morning, this war is within you. This war is not always going to operate at the same heightened intensity. But there's always going to be, if I may use this word, there's always going to be this, this tussle. And it's always going on because every time you want to obey the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, resident evil is right there with you, tempting you to disobey. And I ask if this war is within you, because if it's not, if you say, well, I don't feel this war, then I would say to you, almost certainly you're not a Christian. You see, if you claim to be a Christian, but you're sinning and you're disobeying and your failure and the breaking of God's law continue, if it doesn't bother you, there's something wrong. If you're never disturbed by it, if you never cry over it, if you never lament over it, there is something so desperately wrong to the point that you, you're probably not a Christian, even though you might think you're one. You see, to become a Christian is to become a soldier where your main enemy is not the world, it's not even the devil. It's you. It's your sinful nature. It's the old you, the sinful self. And here's it as a Christian. You never take off your army clothes. You never, ever delist from the Christian army. But this war does not condemn you. Now understand something, Christian. You're going to die in this war. But if you're a Christian fighting this war, one of, the greatest, one of the greatest dangers is the temptation to believe that because you're having this war, you're not saved. Non-Christians do not experience this war. And the temptation as a Christian, as the war goes on, is to keep thinking that perhaps you, you're no longer Free. In other words, that, that you've now come back under condemnation or the condemnation has now come over because you keep on sinning. See, if you're a Christian here this morning and you go back at some point, there was a point as a non-Christian where, 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 where by the Spirit of God you saw your sin. Your sin was exposed to you by the laws of God. And you turned to Jesus and you became a Christian. But then suddenly you start sinning and you keep sinning and you start to think to yourself, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not saved. Well, even worse, as this war goes on, I better keep trying harder. I better try to do better. Because then maybe if I do better and I sin less, then maybe I'm not going to be under condemnation. This was the problem in Galatians. That's what he says to the Christians. Going to the church at Galatians, he says to them, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? See, you don't get saved by the works of Jesus through the power of the Spirit and then keep yourself saved by your works. You only ever get saved and you're kept saved by what? <laughs> by believing in the works of Jesus in his active and passive obedience. 
which is why these words are some of the most glorious in all of Scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But notice where Paul puts that. He puts that at the end of this ongoing struggle and war in the Christian life. There's no condemnation for a Christian at conversion, and there is never, ever condemnation anywhere, anywhere on the line of the Christian life right up into into eternity. There is never, ever, ever, never condemnation nowhere for a Christian, no matter, no matter the ongoing sin. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you're fighting this war, and I want you to be encouraged to know there is no condemnation. And this war is not a sign that you're unsaved. In fact, it's a sign that you that you are saved. Let me put it to you this way. Ongoing sin in the life of a believer does not give you a dishonorable discharge from God's army. The war means you're in, you're in the army. Which brings us to my fourth point, and we're very grateful for that, isn't it? The war will end. I guess the people in Ukraine are asking the same thing, aren't they? So when will this war end? You really want to shout it out? When you die. Oh, or if Jesus comes back before you die. You see, you never reach a point on the Christian life where you get to a point of such holiness where you never sin. As I said, the war might not rage at the same intensity all the time, but please understand there's no ceasefire in this war. There's no truce to be made. It is until death. But listen, by the power of the Spirit within you, you're able to keep fighting this war until you die, until Jesus comes back. You know why? Because the Spirit of God within you is a spirit of power to keep fighting the indwelling presence of sin. That's why Paul says in verse 25, Thanks be to God who delivers me. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, the war that we're fighting against sin has already been it's already been won. Sin will not have the last word. Its power has been defeated. Its presence will one day be no more. And listen, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees that one day we will get out of this body and get into a new body that will not sin. So I do want to ask you, are you ready for a new resurrected body? Oh, it didn't sound overly convincing. Are you ready? Well, then you better start praying, Lord Jesus, come. I was going to say you better start praying, Lord, let me die, but I don't know if that would even fit. But you get my drift, right? <laughs> let me give you number five. Understanding all that means that the war changes our relationships. In the church. What do I mean? 
there is something that every single one of us here is afraid of. There is something that every single one of us at some level is afraid of. Do you know what it is? Hmm? Close, Will. We're afraid at some level of exposure. We are afraid to be real about the sins we struggle against. We're afraid to be honest about the over-continual over-drinking, overeating. We're afraid to be exposed and, and share about the, on, the addictions and the ongoing sins of the flesh. We're afraid to share about our obsessions with sex, pharmaceutical drugs, and entertainment. We're afraid to share about the ongoing bitterness, the lack of ability to forgive, we're afraid to share about the anger we feel when we're being rejected, ignored, and we're treated by people as if we don't even exist. We're afraid to admit about our depressions, our anxieties over money, over our children, over our financial security, over our health. We're afraid to be real about the forked tongues that we so often happen because we so often gossip and slander. We're afraid to share about the shame that we inflict on others and the shame that's inflicted on us. And we're afraid of that because we think that if we share that, we're just going to get what? More shame. We're going to get shame on top of the shame. We're so afraid because then we, maybe we're going to get shunned. We're going to be thought bad of. What is so-and-so going to think of me? What is the pastor going to think of me? What is my church going to think of me? We, we, we're afraid because then maybe other Christians are going to think, but maybe I'm not a Christian, or maybe I'm not as good as a Christian as they thought I was, and maybe the church, the church leadership is then going to step in and start to discipline me. We're so afraid because we're afraid of going to get judged. Now, the reality is this. That will happen. That does happen. But I want to say this to you. The reason that happens is because it usually comes from Christians that don't really understand the war that I'm talking about. They haven't really fully grasped this war. Let me give you a couple of statements from Christians that, I, that usually come out from Christians, and it usually indicates that they haven't yet fully grasped the war that I'm talking about. Christians say something like this. Well, how could Christian X do that? How could Christian X do it again? And again. And again. I mean, what is wrong with Christian X? Shouldn't Christian X be disciplined by now? Shouldn't we shun them and put them out of the congregation? Oh, I would never do that as a Christian. You see what happens. If you don't understand the war within yourself and you don't understand this war in, in, in the lives of other Christians, it's far too easy to become a Christian Pharisee where you become so judgmental about the sins of others while you're rather blind and numb to your own. I mean, it is so easy to see the sin in others, but so hard to admit the sin in you. So James says it like this. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray so that you may be healed. I can tell you from personal experience that there are certain sins in your life that will never start to lose their grip on you until you bring them out of the dark and into the light. 
You see, it's this war that needs to change our relationships. It should start to produce a much more open, healthier church life together where we're able to share it at appropriate, discerning, wise levels because we're all fellow soldiers and we're all suffering the ongoing shrapnel of sin, whether it be our own or that of others. I read a book once and I've never forgotten the title. I'm not sure it was in the book, but the title said, Christians are the only people who shoot their wounded. Do you know why we don't share? We're so afraid we're going to get shot by our brothers and sisters. It means that we've got to be, we, we, we've got to be working towards being a, a safe church, a safe place. And we will only start to move Stuff out of the darkness into the light. And share it with people, with Christians that understand the war on the Christian soul. Let me give you one more. The war changes our relationships with one another and it changes the tone and the two are related when you understand what we're talking about this morning, it means that as we relate to one another, we're going to be a lot quicker to listen rather than speak. Listen to understand rather than judge. We're going to be a lot slower to rush in with theological fixes and theological verses as our brothers and sisters break and lament over their sin with us. What it means, where does the tone change? It means that we become a lot more tender, a lot more compassionate, a lot more empathetic with one another, rather willing to carry the burden rather than try to fix it or remove it. Now, please do not hear me, please do not hear me say that we just keep overlooking all manner of sin, no matter what it is. I'm not saying that. There is a time and a place to deal with sin, of course. There is a place for church discipline that moves towards restoration. But here's what I want you to understand. Each and every one of us, each and every one of us in the pulpit is not excluded. We are continually plagued by the presence of sin, aren't we? And the tone, therefore, needs to be tender, gentle, compassionate empathetic, coming alongside. Am I saying that these relationships are easy to develop? Well, no. Some of us, including myself, have been hiding for years. But develop them we must. In our marriages, in our homes, with our children, in our church, in our connect groups, of course it has to be done with a great deal of discernment and a great deal of wise love. So let me finish with this.
the presence of sin will only be removed when you're dead or if Jesus comes back before then. So until then, brothers and sisters, until then, let us fight the good fight against sin by the power of the Spirit, knowing that the war has been won and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, no matter the ongoing presence of sin. The presence of sin will only be removed at your death or Jesus comes back. So until then, my brothers and sisters, that we might learn to confess our sins to one another and be healed. Let us carry one another's burdens. Let's do so with gentleness and graciousness and compassion. The war. The war is hard, isn't it? It's hard. I'll ask the gathering team to come and join up front. As they do so, this, this closing song, it's, it's, it's slightly older. And as you sing it, I, I'm going to ask you to stand. And, and that it's really a prayer. It's a song prayer. And, and it's a song that asks God to continually purify our hearts. And, but I know that as you sing this, even that sense of war is going to be very present. <laughs>